So Colossians, let's look at kind of just the who, the what, the when, the where, all that good stuff here just to give us a bit of a background and introduction to the letter. Of course, this is a Pauline epistle. Paul's the one that wrote this book here. And again, like we've been seeing in the previous Pauline epistles that we've been in, this is known as one of those prison epistles. So we've got Ephesians, we've got Philippians, now Colossians. What's the fourth prison epistle? Anyone? Shout it out. The fourth prison epistle? Philemon. Philemon. There we go. All right. We'll get there eventually. All right. Not, did you guys have it back there? No? Okay. All right. Okay. I thought you were saying we had it. Philemon. So four prison epistles that we've got. Colossians is one of them. So the dating of this writing, Paul's writing this most likely. Again, there's different times that Paul was in prison. He was in an Ephesian uh, prison. He was in prison at Caesarea Maritima there on the coast in the Mediterranean. Um, and then also in prison in Rome. So it's always kind of evaluating where exactly was Paul writing this. Well, many believe he's writing this from Rome, his last kind of imprisonment there. Early on, perhaps in his imprisonment. So most likely, this book is being written around uh, 60 to 62 AD. Now, where is this place that he's writing to? It's the letter to the Colossians. And so he's writing to a place called Colossae. Colossus, Colossi, Colossae. However you want. A little inside fun there. Um, so uh, Colossae was, was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. So it's out on the eastern side of, uh, of modern-day Turkey. Let me throw up a little map here for you. And you see, so if you look below, you got Ephesus right there, kind of on the uh, coast of the... Um, Aegean Sea? Do I got that right? Is that where it is? Aegean Sea, is that what runs up there or is that on the other side there? Is that even, that's not just part of the Mediterranean. I thought that was like a, I can't even see. Let me look on this thing. I can't even see that map too well. Anyways. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. So Ephesus, and then you scoot over to Colossae. And so it's kind of blowing up on the top box there for you to see. And so that's where Colossae was. And so Paul is writing to this group of people that are there in Colossae. Now, what's interesting is Paul had never visited this place before, all right? Paul had never been to Colossae. It's one of only two books that Paul wrote where he had not previously visited that church that he's writing to. Does anybody know the other book that Paul wrote to people that he had not previously visited before going there? Cole, you can, no? Was that just a, a... Romans, yes. Who else said that over here? Right, Julie, and you back there? Cole, you got it too, right? All right, you're making up for Sunday anniversary there. Well done. He's getting it. Okay, well done. Um, so Romans, so those are the two books that Paul Paul wrote to a place here that he had not previously visited. Now, we know he ended up in Rome because he's writing this letter from Rome in prison, right? So here's this place. Now, what happened and, and kind of the idea, the occasion of writing this. Now, uh, how did Paul end up knowing about these people? Well, it's believed that while he's there in Ephesus ministering, right? And remember, Ephesus was that place that he'd stayed the longest in his ministry journeys, about three years there in Ephesus. So it's believed that while he's in Ephesus, he ministered to many people. In fact, Paul writes that, or in Acts, it tells us that many people from all around Asia kind of came and heard the gospel during Paul's stint there in Ephesus. And so Epaphras is one of those guys that had heard this. I think you can look it up in Acts chapter 19 and hear some reference. Epaphras is mentioned 
in the book of Colossians here. But Epaphras is believed to be a convert of Paul there in Ephesus or a person that got you know, trained up under Paul and then went back to Colossae where he was from. And there he founded the church in Colossae. So Paul's hearing about what's going on there and decides to write this letter. Now, the occasion of writing this letter was a little bit of a... a a sour one to some degree. Now, there's a lot of great things to write about the church there and to the people, but there's also a bit of false doctrine that's beginning to creep in, as it did in many places during the early church. You know, Satan's, you know, uh, he's not liking what he's seeing with all these churches popping up and people getting saved. So Satan's on the attack. And he's on the attack there at Colossae. And so Paul is writing this letter to really dispel this heretical view that was sweeping into the church and into the early church in in general. Now, Colossae, for a time, was a real vibrant and thriving, important city. There, along with Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, these cities, they had a major trade route that were running through it. So it was a hotbed uh, of east and west commerce and all kind of traveling through. So a lot of activity, a lot of things were going on and all meeting up within the city there. But for some reason, that city began to kind of slip away from its glory days. The other two cities remained prominent while Colossae kind of became a shadow of what it once was. And so this city was the most really unimportant city that Paul was writing to. Uh, it wasn't a lot of, uh, of, of action going on, but Paul wanted to write to this people to extend his love to them, prayers for them, but also to deal with this heresy that was going on. And it became labeled sort of, you know, for people, uh, students of the word, became labeled as this Colossian heresy, is what it's called. Now, the church there was made up of primarily Gentile people, but also a mix of Jews were a part of the church as well. And so this heresy became kind of a combination of many things, Eastern philosophy, mysticism, astrology, angelology even, study of angels or the worship of angels. And then there was Jewish legalism, parts of Christianity. So all these things began to get mixed together what became known as this Colossian heresy. So they're taking all these different teachings and ideas and worship of different things and different views and kind of began to blend it all together. So it's kind of like, listen, you can, you can have that and you can kind of worship this, but there's also this side of things too that we can also be very receptive of and accepting of and kind of sounds quite familiar today, doesn't it, right? What a lot of people are trying to say and, and pass on. Now, this Colossian heresy really became kind of the start or the beginnings for what was what became known as Gnosticism. Now, some of you might be familiar with Gnosticism. For some of you, you're thinking, I just made up a new word here. But Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, which means to know. So thus, Gnostics were the people in the know who considered themselves the spiritual elite. According to them, it was by knowledge as opposed to faith that humanity was to be regenerated. Faith was suited only to the rude masses, the animal men. Gnostics held the basic doctrine that matter, physical or created, it was evil. And that only the spirit was good. So they reasoned that God could not be involved in creation because being perfect, he could not touch matter, which was intrinsically evil. Therefore, the world came into being through a complicated process 
of God putting forth thousands of, of these emanations or lesser gods. And so he created all these different emanations, each of which became down the line a little bit more distant from him until we reached a place where one emanation was able to create all these things because it was so far removed from God that this emanation could create matter, create things that were evil, they would believe, but it didn't taint God in a sense. So this is kind of what they began to teach and, and believe. Now, this reasoning led to the belief that Jesus Christ, if he was really the son of God, could not have taken on a human body because matter was evil. So Jesus couldn't have been a, a physical being. They, they began to teach that he was just kind of a, a, a ghost-like phantom. When he walked along the beach, he didn't leave any footprints in the sand. He was just kind of this ghost-like phantom. That's what, what the Gnostics began to, to teach here. And so this delusion spawned the Gnostic lie that Jesus was just not really a physical being. And basically that his, his incarnation was not real. Christ was not creator. And ultimately that Christ was not enough. Christ was not enough to, to save you, to worship. He was not the one that we were to really look to. So the Gnostics built a system by which one could begin with Christ and work one's way up the series of emanations all the way back to God then. Now, in Colossae, this system, Gnosis, appears to have cons uh, consisted of ascetic disciplines, all right? We're going to look at that in Colossians chapter 2. Things like, you know, mysticism, legalism, all these uh, complex and proudly intellectual kind of beliefs that thought, listen, we're, we're attaining to a higher spiritual level here. We're just kind of following that track of these emanations back to God. It might start with Jesus, but it goes well beyond Jesus. And, and so they began to kind of have this secret, you know, spiritual truth in a sense that you need to attain to. Now, there are two camps that Gnosticism invoked. The group that, first of all, practiced strict disciplines of things of the flesh because they believed that the flesh was evil. And so you didn't want to do anything to do with the flesh. And so there was these strict disciplines that they would adhere to. But then there was also the other side of the coin, the other group that thought since matter is evil, but the spirit is good, you could then indulge the flesh and it didn't really matter because it wasn't really the, the true you. So you could do whatever you wanted to with the flesh, but it's the spirit that we want to take care of because it's a spirit that's good, the evil, the, the, the flesh doesn't really matter. So you had two sides. The sides that say, we got to walk in strict kind of, you know, uh, disciplines against the flesh. And the other side that says, oh man, have at it. It's all good, right? And so this is what was going on within Gnosticism. So with this heresy came a real spiritual kind of snobbery. This idea like, well, you know, you haven't really attained to the level of spiritual uh, understanding or perfection as I have. And so people began to really use this as kind of a, uh, a level of, you know, spirituality, that sort of thing, and hold that against others. Some believe they were of a select group to obtain the secret knowledge, which allowed them to move further down that line, to be in closer proximity to God and attain that close union and perfection with God. Now, it's interesting because that spirit anytime that a person believes they've uncovered some kind of hidden truth or have attained to a spiritual elevation through what they've done or through what they've understood. And, and it only leads to a false premise of salvation. It leads to it, it, it leads to spiritual elitism and pride that all runs very contradictory to God's word, doesn't it? So we have to be so careful because I think we can still see those elements of Gnosticism try to sneak in the church 
or, or the devil, you know, really try to use these things to kind of feed this, this spiritual pride of man, of people, to where we can so easily begin to fall prey to these things, feeling like, well, I found a way to really be close to God. And it's through this practice or through this means. Listen, the way to God is just right through the word of God and, and following in obedience to the word of God. It's not complicated. There's no, there's no locked doors here that we have to try to find the secret keys to open up. It's all right, very clear and plain and simple for us, isn't it? So we need to be careful of the spirit of Gnosticism even in our day. So Paul sets out in this epistle to counter all these these false ideas, these false teaching, these lies that have been propagated by, by Gnostics, the things that I've just talked about here. Here's some things that Paul's going to be addressing and pointing out, and I don't know if you'll be able to read that. It's kind of small font. But first of all, the Colossian heresy believe this, that the material world is evil. God is spiritual. So God can have nothing to do with the material universe. Yet Paul will say in chapter 1, verse 16, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Next, they believe, the Colossian heresy believed if Jesus created the world, then he could not have been God. Because God would have nothing to do with matter, physical matter. But, again, as we just saw, you know, verse 16 said, by him all things are created. Paul also says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. So he was fully God, no doubt. Chapter 1, verse 19. They also taught that, well, nothing that happens in the material world can rarely or really make a difference spiritually. Yet, in verse 21 and 22, Paul says, You were God's enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. They taught that we don't need to be reconciled. Our bodies are evil because they are material. And our minds are material, and so we're good. Yet, Paul would say in chapter 2, verse 13, you were dead in your sin, in your sins and in the, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. But then God, who made you alive with Christ, he forgave us all our sins. They also taught that real spirituality is still a matter of one's inner life. We approach God mentally and what we do here is irrelevant to him. Yet Paul would say in chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 17, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So like I said, this kind of teaching, this this false doctrine that really became the origins of Gnosticism was sweeping through the early church in general. John himself had to combat these same kind of ideas and teachings because notice what John would say in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. He'd say this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and are hands have handled concerning the word of life the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us and then in in first john 4 verse 3 and every spirit that does not confess that jesus christ has come in the flesh is not of god and this is the spirit of the antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world now today we have people that say oh no jesus was just a man he just came in the flesh he wasn't truly the son of god so I, I would go, man, this is the one that people really need to get their minds around that he's more than just a man. And then when I'd read First John, you know, when I was growing up, I'd go, why was that an issue? Why do you have to say? Because that's not something that people struggle with. But John was dealing with these Gnostics that said God didn't have anything to do with, with fleshly matter, physical matter. And so they denied that Christ came in the physical body. 
But John says, no, we've got to believe that he did. This is important here in the gospel. So John says that every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he's not a God. Because he denies who Jesus truly is, that he's truly the son of God, that he is fully God, but he came as fully man to redeem us, to pay the penalty for our sins, that which we couldn't do. He had to become like us in order to do that. So that's important. And so we see this being dealt with in the early church here, both with Paul here in Colossians and with John as he's writing in his epistles there. Now, ultimately, with Jesus Christ being diminished in the eyes of the Gnostics, Paul sets out to proclaim the ultimate supremacy of Christ. That's what that's what the book of Colossians is really all about here. The ultimate supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is over all. There's nothing greater than Jesus. He's not, he's not the starting point. No, he's, he's the starting, middle, ending point. It's all about Jesus. It's the supremacy of Jesus. And that he is all that is necessary in life, over and above Jewish legalism, Gnostic beliefs, and any other human philosophy which are empty, inadequate, and unfulfilling. It's all found wrapped up in Jesus. Amen? So that's what Paul sets out to proclaim here in this letter. This is what we're going to look at in our outline here. First of all, as Paul often does, he writes with a very doctrinal approach to lay out kind of the foundations of our faith here. So chapters 1 and 2 are doctrinal, which he's writing to proclaim Christ's preeminence that's declared to the church. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we look at the practical, what this means for us now. Now that he lays out what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ, the doctrinal side, now what does it mean for us? So we look at the practical and we see Christ's preeminence demonstrated through the church in chapters 3 and four. Let's get into it here. Chapter one, verse. Let's pick it up in verse three, because Paul just intros telling him that it's him that's writing this. He's apostle of Jesus Christ. And then we read in verse three that we give thanks to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So Paul starts out giving thanks for this church. He doesn't know these people. He's never been there. He hasn't visited that city, but he's grateful that the word has gone out and that they're now living with an eternal hope. Is that great? They, they received the gospel and now they have a hope of, of heaven. They have a, a foundation in Christ now and he's giving thanks and praise for these things. And that all this stuff is, is bringing forth fruit now. That's the ultimate goal, right? That we might receive, that we might grow, that we might bear fruit. But as you know, when you leave fruit out for a time, what's going to happen? It's going to attract some fruit flies. It's going to attract some bugs, right? That's what's going to happen when you leave fruit just sitting there, right? That's not the fruit's fault. That's just, you know, little bugs want to get in there, devour that thing. That's what Satan wants to do. He sees fruit. He's like, oh, man, I don't, I don't know if I want that lingering around. I want to try to devour that. I want to try to eat that up, remove that. So here's this, these, these lies coming into the church here now. There's these pests coming around this fruit of the Colossian saints looking to try and devour the good that's come of them. So Paul looks to show the truth of Jesus right away in chapter one. He doesn't, he doesn't waste any time. He just wants to lay out for them now. Listen, here's what we have in Jesus Christ. So he looks to show the truth of Jesus here and dispel these false reports being communicated by these false teachers. 
But before Paul goes on the defense, he prays. And he, and he prays a lovely prayer to strengthen these believers. Paul's prayer in, in Colossians 1, verse 9 to 11 says this. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy. So here Paul really outlines the way that spiritual believers can begin to experience true spiritual growth, because spiritual growth begins with the knowledge of objective truth that's revealed through scriptures right so he talks about the knowledge of his will there in verse 9 that they might they might understand that knowledge of his will here be filled with the knowledge of his will now we're going to get that right from the word of god and then we must treat that truth with all wisdom and spiritual understanding as it says at the end of verse 9 seeking to understand its practical implications for our daily life and we then apply god's truth making choices which Please him in every way, and we do what? We walk worthy of the Lord, verse 10, right? Walking worthy of the Lord. And as we, as we live the, a, a worthy life, we become fruitful in every good work. That's just the process that takes place there. These are all things that Paul's laying out and praying for them. Although you might walk worthy, that you might have that fruitful life. These are all just the byproducts now as we're going to take in the word and be filled with the knowledge of his will. Receive it with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Begin to put down to practice walking worthy and bearing fruit. These are all just the byproducts of, of following in this. And it's a great prayer to pray for one another. Paul's desiring that to see this growth in their lives here. I notice this prayer for these saints is not revolving around physical or material blessings, but rather spiritual blessings. Notice that, that Paul prays not for thrills, but for God's will. He prays not to walk safely, but to walk worthy. Not for fluff, but for fruit. Not for increase in income, but for increase in insight. Not for prosperity, but for power. Not for escape, but for endurance. Not for more toys, but rather for more joys. These are the things that Paul is praying for, right? Isn't that great? Those, that's what we want to be seeking and, and, and asking the Lord, would you, would you increase these things in my life? So often we get caught up in the material. Listen, the material is temporal, all right? These are things that have eternal value to it. Now, as Paul gets ready to refute this false teaching, he once more now points people to the amazing work that God has done for them. He gives the gospel in a nutshell to let these believers know they have all that they need through faith in Jesus. So he says in verse 13, check this out. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that great? That's just the gospel right there. This is what we've all been recipients of through faith in Jesus. We've been delivered out of darkness and and conveyed into his great kingdom of love through his son. Been redeemed, forgiven. Oh, man, it's so good to know what God has done for us. And that's what we need to continually remind ourselves of the great work God has done for us because it causes us to say, Lord, my life is yours. I'd be lost. I'd be in the dark if it weren't for you. So, Lord, whatever I can do to serve you, to live for you, to honor you, God, I want to do because of what you've done here. So now moving on, verse 15, Paul gives us some of the most glorious 
majestic descriptions of Jesus that's given to us in Scripture. Here again, like we said, Paul is looking to reveal the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So they're looking to elevate and exalt and show that there's nothing greater than Jesus. There's no one above Jesus. So here in verses 15 to 18, just some of the most wonderful um, pictures, descriptions of Jesus given in Scripture. It says there in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things are created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Man, that's that's packed full of of just solid truth there, just, uh, again, exalting Jesus. Now, when Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's saying that Jesus gives us a clear picture of who God is, right? It's the Greek word uh, icon that, that Paul uses for image. The word image is the Greek word icon, and it has two ideas associated with it. First, it speaks of likeness or representation, It'd be the word used to speak of an image of one stamped on a coin or, or something like that. An image that was planted upon something, printed on something. You, you see it there. It's very clear. It represents that person. It also speaks of manifestation. In other words, God was fully manifested or made known in Jesus Christ. I mean, many argue, how can I worship a God that I cannot see? I mean, that's something that a lot of people try to use as kind of an excuse to say, why would I worship God? I can't see God, right? I'm sure we've all been there many times. But but Jesus came. He said what? He says in John 14, verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I mean, we get a we get a clear picture of who God is when we look to Jesus. Now again, some of us today might go, well, that would have been great if we lived in Bible times and got to see Jesus walk on the earth. But man, that's long gone. But again, the minute that we just pick up the word of God, we get to see Jesus very clearly because it's all about Jesus. God's word is pointing us to Jesus on on, on every page. I mean, look at what we just read there in verses 15, 18. You want to know what God is like? You want to you want to just read this here and you begin to see Jesus. You begin to see God all through here. So Paul is saying. We're not just getting, uh, you know, some kind of likeness or a similarity we're seeing god very clearly he's the icon the image of god it's a great picture of god and and paul said that he's the firstborn over all creation at the end of verse 15 now in greek and jewish culture the firstborn was the son who had the right of inheritance right it was not just connected with the one born first chronologically but this spoke of a supremacy in rank ultimately it was, it was his priority or importance being given. Jehovah's Witnesses love to use this verse as proof that Jesus was not God. But we now have seen the actual meaning or definition of this word. However, to explain this further with a JW, you can take them to Psalm 89, verse 27. Because the word is speaking about King David there, the last born of Jesse. Yet God says he would make him his firstborn. It doesn't mean chronologically. It means in, in rank or supremacy. That's what is being spoken about with Christ here. He's the firstborn, firstborn of all creation. He's the greatest. He's supreme over all. And by him, by Jesus, 
all things were created, verse 16. I remember the Gnostics said that God couldn't create physical matter because it was evil, right? So he made those various emanations that eventually got so far away from God that they could have created this matter. But Paul says emphatically here, Jesus is the one by which all things were created. Not the good things, not the holy things. All things were created by God. Everything that we see is created by Jesus here. The absurdity that people go through to try to convince one another that we came about through some random process is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, say they just keep kind of painting themselves in a corner trying to explain away creation apart from a creator, don't they? Listen to the opinion of Stephen Jay Gould, a Harvard paleontologist who is regarded as an eminent authority on how life began. Gould says this, We exist because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. I mean, I'm just like, I'm just confused reading that, you know. And so people love to try to find some reason to to explain away a creator, to say, well, no, this is really how it happened, right? Well, let's talk about then how these fish got there to begin with, right? I mean, you keep going back and eventually they have to go back to, well, something started some life form down the road, right? And they've got no answer because they refuse. They, they suppress the truth is what Romans 1 tells us. It's not that they don't know or they don't understand. They don't want to know. They suppress the truth to say, I'm going to just try to find some reason to kind of excuse or explain this away. But in the end, I think they're lying in their bed at night going, man, that just sounds so ridiculous. I can't believe people are buying it. I don't even believe it myself. But I got to suppress the truth somehow, so that's the best way I can do it. I mean, that's kind of what people are doing. I love what it says at the end of verse 16. It says, all things are created through him and what? For him. Is that good? Created for him. very creator of all that we see all that we are that's our purpose that's what we've been created to do is to live to give glory to god our lives exist for one purpose everybody and that is to bring glory to god and you will find your ultimate satisfaction and joy and blessing when you live not for yourself but you live for god because all things are created through him and for him and so that means Let's start living these lives for him in everything that we do. And Paul's going to lay that out for us here as we continue on through Colossians. But in everything we do, may we find ourselves saying, Lord, I want to glorify you through what I'm doing, in what I'm doing, where I'm going. Whatever I'm doing, God, may I glorify you because that's why I'm here on this earth. I've been created for you. So let me bless you. Let me honor you. Let me glorify you in all that I do. And that's where you are going to find your ultimate joy, satisfaction, and peace in life is when we live that way. It's all laid out for us here. And we can do so because, as Paul goes on to say there, he is before all things, and in him all things consist, verse 17. See, Jesus has not been an afterthought. There was nothing before Jesus. He's the only person that ever existed before he was born. Think about that, right? The only one that ever existed before he was born. John 1, 
Verse 1 to 3 makes that very clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So, he's before all things, right? He has no starting point. Bethlehem was not the beginning of Jesus. He's before all things, all right? And in him all things consist. And that literally means that in Jesus, that word consist, it means that everything is being held together. He's, he's holding all things together. He's holding your very life together. Oh, it might feel like it's unraveling at times. But guess what? In him, all things consist. All things are being held together in him and through him. You know, splitting the atom revealed there was a, a whole lot of power right there. There's a whole lot of power contained in this universe. And Jesus is the one that's holding it all together. Second Peter 3 verse 10 seems to allude to a time where Jesus is going to loosen that grip a little bit. And let everything go. It says that the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That seems to be a time where, where Jesus is just going to let go and go, all right, I've been holding all this together. Now I'm going to let it go. And now you'll see just kind of what would happen if I were to let go. And everything's just going to melt away. It's going to pass away the great noise. Think about that. So he's holding all things together. Um, Louis, how do you say his last name? Giglio? 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 Louis Giglio does some great stuff. And when we went through the book of Colossians, we, we put up some pictures. I didn't, I didn't bring them out here, uh, tonight, but he's got, uh, some great, you know, videos and stuff about this idea. What they've, they've discovered is this kind of, um, uh, cell, atom, uh, what is that? Um, it's called laminin that they discovered. It's this thing that, holds us all together. It's like the glue that holds everything together, right? Laminin. And it's interesting, when you search up laminin on, on Google, search up pictures of laminin, and you'll see this laminin is like in the shape of a cross. It's just so interesting, so cool. And so they've realized this is what's really keeping everything held together. And it's a very imprint of the cross. This very, uh, I don't know if it's a, a, somebody help me, cell, Adam, I don't know what it is. What is laminin? It's something in our bodies. We've all got it. But it's like this imprint, this this fingerprint of Christ right there that's just holding everything together. I think that's pretty cool. So check that out. Um, and so not only is, is Jesus here now, you know, just the one that's holding it all together. He's the, the head of the whole universe. But, but Paul also goes on to say that in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Now think about that. He's the head of the whole universe. He's supreme overall. Holding all things together, but he's also just the head of the church. Yeah, it kind of seems like a demotion, doesn't it? It's like taking a step back, but but I love this because it shows that Jesus is interested in and, and caring for you. That he's chosen to put himself as the head of the church by which we might all come in and, and have relationship in him and through him and, and with one another. He's the one that's saying, listen, guys, I'm... He's not, he's not saying, listen, guys, I'm hanging out, controlling the universe. You guys just try to take care of yourselves, okay? I mean, that's not asking too much here, right? All right? No, he says, I, I'm the head of the universe, but I'm also the head of the church. I'm here with you. I'm here to be in, in partnership and relationship with you. I think that's so awesome. And so it's only by being connected to him that we're going to, again, find that blessing and joy 
and fruitfulness in what we do because Christ is to have the preeminence, as it says at the end of verse 18. He's to have that preeminence. Look at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. These are such wonderful truths here uh, that just kind of pop out for us in these verses. We see there in verse 19 that the fullness of God dwells in the body of Jesus. We see in verse 20 that it's through Jesus that the world would be reconciled to God. You see, we were at enmity with God because of our sin. We needed to be reconciled. It's through Jesus that that is accomplished. It's accomplished because he went to the cross, right? He, he went to the cross and he gave up his life. He took our sin that we might be forgiven, that we might come in a right relationship with God. Peace comes from that confession and forgiveness and acceptance of his grace, providing that peace for us through the cross. And we see that our faith, notice this in verse 23, our faith is not a momentary one-time thing. What does Paul say there in verse 23? If indeed you continue in the faith. Do you see that? So there's some Christians that think, oh, well, I've prayed a prayer back when I was at camp and 11 years old. So that should take care of things. Oh, I know I'm not going to church anymore. Oh, I know I'm not really living for the Lord. But, oh, I prayed a prayer one day. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, prayer, prayer, and just sit back and relax now. No, I think the Bible shares, we need to continue in the faith. Listen, it's not continuing in the faith to, to work for your salvation. Well, these are things that we're called simply to do to show that I'm continuing to abide in Christ. Right? That's the key is abiding in him. Continuing on in the faith. We're not guaranteed anything because people can, can move away from the hope of the gospel. People can move away from the hope of the gospel. Listen, I believe that when you are saved, there's nothing that can take away that salvation. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Because losing has with it the idea of something being taken from you apart from what you wanted. Right? It's like when I lose my keys. I don't want to lose my keys. I want my keys. I'm desperately looking for my keys. But some people associate that with salvation. Oh, I've lost my salvation. Oh, my goodness. You know, and they think, oh, I've forfeited. I've, I've disqualified myself. Now, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. But I believe what Paul says, you can, you can walk away. You can be moved away from it. You can choose to leave it behind. That's why he says you need to continue in the faith. That's why there's such an emphasis on just growing and being discipled. You continue on walking with the Lord, growing in him, learning of him. Continue on not to earn your salvation. No, we're saved the moment we put our faith in Christ. But you can bet your bottom dollar, you need to continue in that faith. Don't rely upon something you did and think that's going to just now, you know, I can do whatever I want now. Because the true Christian is going to show themselves by how they live and what they do. Someone once said, if your faith fizzles before you finish, it's because it was faulty from the first. 
If your faith fizzles before you finish, it's because it was faulty from the first. Listen, chapter 2. All right, we got to move along here, guys. Chapter 2. Would you stop taking so long, everybody? Just keep up with me, okay? Chapter 2, all right? Chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says this, Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's the very scripture of the series we've been taking many through in our church, the 2-7 series. It's right there, Colossians 2-7, right? Having been rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So here's the deal. These, again, these false teachers have been coming in. They've been sounding spiritual. They would throw around some big words, some words that would make them make it sound like they really know what they're talking about, right? Oh, they must be very truthful because they're saying things I don't even understand what they're saying. Boy, they must really know what they're talking. You ever feel that way sometimes? I mean, we we can really kid people. We can really fool people by throwing around some intellectual words. That's what a lot of these people do, and I, I think they just they end up not even knowing what they're saying half the time, right? And it makes you you're like, wow, that was. That was really impressive. I have no idea what you said. It must be impressive, right? I mean, that's kind of what we what we reason sometimes. But here Paul says, listen, don't let anyone deceive you with persuasive words or these, you know, fanciful words in a sense, right? Truth isn't convoluted or hard. It's quite simple. God's made it very plain for us here, right? We don't need to have some kind of hidden thing coming into us to go, well, what we really need to do is really open up now what... No, God's word is very simple for us to understand. Now, yeah, there's things that you can dive into and you can get some, you know, understanding. We look at some original language or the context or the culture and you can find some things that are really interesting. But, I mean, that's that's great. That's that's the icing on the cake. But really, we just need to take it at face value and go, man, this is enough right here for me to learn and grow and to chew on until the day I'm with Christ. It's quite simple. So Paul says, as you've received Christ, just keep walking in him. Don't let anybody else come and deter you on this journey. There's no secret alternate entrances you need to find. Just keep abiding in Christ. Be established and rooted in him, just as you've already been taught, he says. And then he says in verse 8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So Paul says, listen, don't let anyone cheat you or, 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 or deceive you through philosophy or empty deceit. Now listen, not all philosophy is bad, all right? Some philosophy is very good. But philosophy that leaves out Christ, where he's not preeminent, that's the enemy. And some we want to say, I, I don't want to follow that. An empty deceit, as Paul says, you know, people coming along, deceiving you through philosophy or empty deceit. Empty deceit is, is promising one thing, but yet having no ability to produce it. It's the way the enemy has always worked. The enemy, Satan, has always come along to say, listen, if you just follow me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reward you through that. Oh, if you just do this, this is going to bring so much pleasure and satisfaction to you. It's empty to see because there's no way of, uh, of actually coming through on what he's trying to do and say. It's often the way dating relationships function, right? You bet someone is, is, is thinking this is what they're going to be getting. I'm going to marry this person. All of a sudden it's like, what happened? Where's that one person that was once romancing me and say well that was just to get you to say yes to marry me no i'm just i'm just kidding everybody come on have some fun with me here okay but some of you know man when you started dating you did the seat you people okay now i love what paul adds here everything you need there verse verse 10 everything you need is in christ the fullness of god is found in him and you are complete in him do you see that there in verse 10 I love that. You are complete in him because he's the head over all things. That's pretty comforting. This is something to be enjoyed now, not just something to be achieved later. You're complete in him. Live in that. Enjoy that. Going on to verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over it, triumphing over them in it. Now, Paul lays out the condition that we were all in apart from Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. All right? Meaning that we haven't been, you know, cut off from the, the, the sin of our lives. But this is the beauty of, uh, of Christianity. Because no other religion has the power or the ability to make us alive. Or to bring about the forgiveness of sin. That only comes about through Christ. All the false teachers were offering was a way that included, you know, works and rituals. Here's what you need to do to kind of earn your way, but it could never do it. You know, Christianity doesn't say do. It says it's done. The work is finished for you. And now through faith, we experience Christ's power at work in our lives. Listen, salvation is not the improvement of the old nature. It's the impartation of a new nature. That's the great thing about salvation. That's the great work of Christ transforming us, not trying to put on some, you know, nicer clothes to cover up the old self. It's not it's not the just the improvement of the old nature. It's the impartation of a new nature. And then Paul writes about these these handwriting of requirements. That's book of a written note signed by a debtor acknowledging his debt. It's like an IOU, right? Where he said, OK, I'm going to write this out. And here's what I owe you. Imagine if someone came along. And just erased any IOU. Or erased your credit card debt. Just said, taken care of. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you love that? That's essentially what Christ did for us. Except in a far greater way. Because the handwriting requirements was basically our sin, the debt that we owed, which was our life. But Christ came along, it says in verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. He came along. And he just wiped it out. It's that certificate of debts that he just erased for us. And he nailed it, it says, to the cross. Just as as any person is being sentenced on the cross, they would write down the offense on the cross. It was as though Jesus took all of our sins laid out and he put that on the cross said, I'm paying the penalty. 
I'm paying the price for all these sins, for the sins of all of humanity, for yours and for mine. He nailed those offenses to the cross and he wiped out the handwriting of requirements, the debt that we owed. He's erased it now. So we can sit here forgiven, cleansed. Now able to stand before God with that right standing through the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that amazing, guys? Isn't that wonderful? And I'm sure that when Jesus went to the cross, the enemy's all looking at that rejoicing. This is it. We've done it. Oh, man, we got him on the cross. This is great. Little did they know that what they thought was their victory actually turned out to be their defeat. Because it, it says there, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them. For a moment, they're rejoicing. Just a few days later, they'd realize, oh, my goodness, he's back. Oh, my goodness, I'm back even more powerful now. I don't know if that's possible, but, you know, resurrected bodies. So it's amazing. He's he's disarmed them, made a public spectacle of them. He's defeated them once and for all. So because Jesus has done this for you and for me, because the work is finished, don't let anyone try to rob you now of that salvation. Look what Paul goes on to say in verse 16. So let no one judge you, right? Because of what Christ has done, it's all linked to what we just looked at. Because of what Christ has done for us, don't let anyone judge you now any longer in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. What Paul is saying, don't let anyone bring you back into the inferior things now where you might think you're attaining a level of spirituality or you're attaining a level of uh, of right standing with God. Don't let anyone bring you back into the inferior things because Christ has already done the work for you as we just looked at there in verses 13 to 15. He's already finished the work for you. It's done. All these things now that people once walked in and exercised the different laws and requirements and, and festivals, all those things were simply a shadow of Christ. They were to point us to Christ. They were to be that which was was going to be fulfilled in and through christ which he's done now we have the real true substance now and that's christ we no longer need these inferior things listen if i'm if i'm away on a vacation and i miss my family so much i I can't wait to get home right and see them but if i get home and they're standing at the door greeting me hey dad good to have you back and i just walk right by them and i grab that portrait on the wall of my family and i start hugging and kissing them oh i missed you guys they look at me and go what man where what have you been eating over there because something's messed you up why would i want the inferior why would i want the picture when i got the real thing right there waiting for me at the door right and so too for us we no longer need to go through an avenue which brought us just to a, a picture, a glimpse of Christ. We've got the real deal now in and through Christ, who's come and brought us near and who's given us life in and through him. All those things are a substance. So don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone bring you back under these things to say, this is what you need to do to be right with God or to find some kind of level of, of, of spirituality. These are what you need. No, it's all in Christ. It's all about Christ. He's preeminent. He's supreme, right? This is what Paul is is getting at in this book of Colossians. He says in verse 20 of chapter 2, Therefore, if you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why so living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which 
perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have, and notice this, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but, but they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So again, like we saw with the Gnostics, they would say, well, because the flesh is evil, we're going to deny the flesh. We're not going to do anything with it. We're going to discipline ourselves, and we're not going to do anything. And they just brought themselves under these strict regulations and restrictions. Paul says, why are you doing that? That's of no value. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Why do you subject yourselves to these things any longer? They, these things have an appearance of making you feel spiritual and strong and wise religious but there's no there's no profit for you in them it's all about putting your faith in christ who's paid the penalty for that sin and who's now made you new in him it's all about christ this is what paul is getting at here so he goes on to say in chapter three if then you were raised with christ Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul, now he takes us from the doctrinal truths that we've looked at in chapters 1 and 2 to move on to the practical things and he lays out for us this better way. And not if then you were, it's since then you're raised to Christ. Since he's come and he's become your life, since he has made you alive in him, since you have been raised to Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. See, Paul's been revealing to us that we have new life in Christ. So since we were raised to Christ, seek those things which are above, namely, namely Christ. He's the preeminent one. So focus on him. Not on the things of this world by which you're going, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I can only do this. Stop focusing on the things of the world. Look up. Look to Christ. Focus on him. Set your mind on things above. Because when we have an eternal perspective, our earthly possessions and our problems on this world become that much more insignificant. Listen, do you hear that? When we have an eternal perspective, our earthly possessions and problems become that much less in, or, or significant. Become that much more insignificant. That's what I'm trying to say. We need to have our mind fixed on things above. That's why, why Peter would say, right, in, in chapter 1, verse 13, to gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Think properly on these things. Our life is to be wrapped up in Christ now because he's our life. And one day he's coming back and we'll be with him forever. So live with that eternal perspective and hope because that's what's going to free you ultimately from the flesh. That's what John would write in 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the hope we're to have. That's the perspective we're to have. Because it's, it's a purifying perspective when we realize he's coming back again. And when he does, we're going to be made like him. Might as well get a head start on that. Let's start living like him now. So Paul goes on to say in verse 8 of chapter 3, But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Out of your mouth. That sounds familiar, right? That's what we looked at on Sunday. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. 
And let me reverse them. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So here's that picture again. The willful, obedient Christian putting off the old and putting on the new. This doesn't happen through some special revelation or hidden truth, as the Gnostics would say. It comes through life in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Paul says he is all and in all. So take that action where you are, are choosing to. You're willfully, obediently saying, I'm going to put off the old. Like what Peter said, lay aside malice, right? And, and, and envy and evil speaking and all these things. Lay aside those things. Put them off. But it's not enough just to put off something. You want to replace it with that, which is good. So it says, put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Therefore, verse 12, as the elected God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I love that. Above all these things, put on love. It's the bond. It's the glue. It's the thing that holds it all together perfectly. Love. It's all about love. God is love. Now, verse 12 where it said, therefore, that kind of points us back to what we saw there in verse 9 and 10. To put off the old, put on the new. And so, we're to, as elected God, again, continue to walk in this new life. The elected God, that's a, a great title. That was a title that was reserved for Israel, along with that holy and beloved. But now we've been included among a special people, not, not replaced Israel. No, we've been included along with his special people. We're a chosen people. It's the same word Peter uses in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. We're going to look at this on Sunday. But you are a chosen generation, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness in his marvelous light. All believers are the elect of God. All right? We're, we're chosen of him. And as holy and beloved people, we're to demonstrate love one to another. We're to bear with one another, forgive one another. And we must always remember how Christ so graciously forgave us. We didn't deserve it. See, the one thing that gets in our way of loving others, forgiving other people, is looking at them thinking, they don't deserve it. They're not being very nice to me. They're not being very kind to me. They're not, they're not coming to me asking to be forgiven. Why should I forgive them? You know, these are all things that Jesus could have easily said. God, why should I forgive them? They're not interested in us. They're not following us. They're not loving us. Why should I forgive them? But that's what grace does. Grace gives us that which we don't deserve. When I see people that are not walking in grace or they're slow to forgive, I see people that have not fully recognized their own need for forgiveness or grace. And are not coming to see the greatness of grace that was extended to them when they least deserved it. The more that we grow in the grace of God, the more that we're going to walk in grace to others. The more that we understand the love of God, the more that we're going to be walking in love one to another. These are, these are commandments that were given in God's word. Right? Jesus, how many times did he tell his disciples to love one another? Love one another. Paul is laying out for us here. But we've got to understand 
how God loved us when we didn't deserve it. How God showed grace and forgiveness to us when we didn't deserve it. And the more that you understand that and grow in it, the more you're going to be that much more able to demonstrate that to others. Oh, that we might grow in grace, everyone. So Paul takes us next to areas that we're going to need a lot of grace. And he starts right there in marriage. Isn't that great? Right? Husbands and wives? Yes, this is where we... I think God, you know, has set up marriage just so that we really begin to understand grace all the more. How much we need to walk in grace one for another. Look at what he says in verse 18. We're just about done. We're, not, we're going to be wrapping up very quickly here. But verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, he moves on. Obey your parents in all things for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, hey, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, now with thy service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord uh, the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Paul just sort of skims through a number of relationships, ones that are our most important and, and the primary of, of all human relationships, starting right from husband and wife, children and parents. But then he takes us from the, you know, the bedroom to the boardroom, to businesses, employees with their employers. And I love the flow in the center, because Paul started off by saying that Christ is preeminent overall. And now Paul just personalized this and says, in the same way, Christ must be preeminent in your own life. In your life, in your relationships, in your home, in your closest relationships, in your work, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, is Jesus the Lord of your life? Because it's easy to sit there and say, oh, man, yes, Christ is, is supreme. He's preeminent over all. He's the, he's the one that has created the universe. Oh, yes, he's over all. But are we ready to say he's truly over my life? He is truly the Lord of every area of my life. Oh, it's easy to generalize and say, yes, he's supreme over this universe. He's preeminent. But does he have that place in your own heart and in your own life? Because that's where Paul takes us. From the beginning of creation, but now takes us to the most intimate of relationships. Is he there, preeminent in those? Is he the one that you're serving? Because Paul says, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. Do it heartily as to the Lord and not to one another. And that changes the way that we do things. In your workplaces, if you've got a boss, right, that's beaten down on you, and you can sit there and think, oh, man, he doesn't deserve my best. I'm not going to do this the way that he wants it done. But you know what? You can turn around and have a completely different attitude and say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to do this unto you. I'm not doing it unto him or for him. In a sense, I am because I'm not going to get a paycheck if I don't. But more so, I'm going to do this for you, Lord. When I started thinking that way, man, it changed what I did. It changed the attitude I have in what I did. When I realized that everything I'm doing, whatever I, wherever I am, my life can be counting for Christ in the way that I just simply do all things unto him. And for him. That's where Paul is taking us here. Are you demonstrating a life where Christ is truly preeminent? Now, 
chapter 4, Paul kind of closes, just laying out a lot of people and sharing about different people and giving thanks. And Paul was a, a true friend. He had a lot of great relationships. But let's just close with, with verses 2 to 6 here and just we'll kind of leave it that. These are some good words to live by here. Verse 2 of chapter 4 says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in change, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. All right, let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for this great epistle. and We thank you for the reminder that you, Jesus, are Lord over all. There's no one greater. Lord, you have supremacy. You're preeminent. And, Lord, we pray, as we've seen here, that that would be true in our own lives personally. That you would take that place, Lord, of being Lord over all, and that, and that we would live these lives in a way that honor and glorify you. That everything we do, Lord, we're doing unto you, for you. We're doing it heartily with joy, Lord, not to men, but to you, because you're deserving of it all. As we've seen in Colossians, God, how you've forgiven us. Lord, you've made us new. God, we're so blessed. And we rejoice in all that you've done for us. And so may we live lives now that are, are different, that are changed. Not, not freshening up the old self, but realizing we're giving a, a new nature in and through you, Jesus. So may we keep our eyes on you, the one that's preeminent over all. Setting our sights on things that are above, our mind on things that are above. And living for you wholeheartedly, Lord. We ask this in your name, Jesus, now. Amen. Amen.